Welcome back to another episode of PCL OTR, the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power podcast. And yes, this week we are talking about episode six. I am one of your hosts, Brian from Pop Culture Leftovers. I'm also joined by Jake from Pop Culture Leftovers. Welcome, Jake. Hey, thank you. Can't wait to talk about this one. Joe Stark from the Starkcast podcast. Welcome, Joe. Hey, stoked to be here. And Billy Blinks from the Reality Guys on YouTube. Welcome, Billy. Excited to be back. Talk about an episode turning it up to 11. I'm really excited to hear your guys' thoughts. Absolutely. Yeah, this one was truly action-packed. And I I was really kind of, you know, Joe, me and you had a conversation about the inevitable battle between the orcs and the men of the Southlands. And are we going to get it? And boy, did we get it. <laughs> yeah, we sure did. <laughs> Listen, the the men of the Southlands that like last episode that left and went and did their own thing and, and went to the orcs and gave fealty to Adar. Uh, absolute pieces of shit, right? But <laughs> the men, I I'm telling you. For as much, um, for as much kind of uh, worry and some level of disrespect the elves have given them from watching them over the years, that they felt this kind of like, um, like they had to be under watch by these elves for all these years because they were worried about these men. I really respected the ones that stayed. I and honestly. It's like a reversal of like we're supposed to have like this admiration and respect because uh, of the Numenorians because of, you know, what they had done and fought side by side with the elves against Morgoth. And they've totally switched now. Like they they disrespect the Valar. They disrespect the elves. But I really I I. These men of the Southlands, this episode really earned my respect. I don't know about you guys. Oh, they sure did, man. They, I mean, these people aren't warriors. These, I mean, they haven't been allowed to even train as warriors. And now to have to stand up to a force like this, um, they acted very, very bravely. I can't wait. I, I really did not expect that. You know, I kind of expected in what we've seen, even in the Jackson films, you did see, say, in Helm's Deep, some villagers being called to arms, but weren't very capable and shown to be so. These these people showed a willingness to be organized, to listen, to put aside even some of their own prejudices to make sure that Aaron Deere's plan worked. And, man, it it was a really awesome thing because, again, it's one of Tolkien's kind of themes that, like, the smallest of people can make the biggest of differences. And these people defended their lands. They didn't – they weren't waiting, and their plan wasn't to wait to be saved. So it was really cool. Absolutely. Yeah, I we're going to break this episode down, um, and we're going to be doing it a little bit differently this week. Joe is actually going to be doing this week's breakdown of the episode. I have been recovering from – being sick this week and so joe is doing a lot of the heavy lifting and uh thank you joe but we're gonna i'm gonna hand it off to you joe and we're gonna break down this episode talk to us about episode six yeah here we go uh episode six titled udun uh fun fact udun is the name of the wide depressed valley in northwestern mordor 
that lies between Sirith Gorgor and Karak Angren. So you, you got your ancient maps ha- uh, handy. There you go. <laughs> I thought I, I thought it was what you said when they announced the new Dune movies. Ooh, Dune. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Dune. <laughs> Ooh, Dune. If people don't know, Joe is a huge fan of Dune, and that is like God's honest. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Dune is like my science fiction, like holy text. Just like Lord of the Rings is like my fantasy, you know, holy text. It is, it is the pinnacle in my opinion. Um, uh, another f- fun fact about Udun, it's a Sindarin word that means hell, <laughs> which uh, yep. that that definitely we, we're seeing that come to fruition by the end of this episode. This is very aptly titled. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this episode begins in the Southlands, and we begin with a shot of Adar planting seeds before the battle, and he says, uh, "New life in defiance of death," and uh, then he gives a speech to his orcs, and uh, talking about how they've they've gone great distances, and they are now fighting not as slaves but as brothers and sisters in their homes. And very, very rousing speech that he's giving uh, to his his orcs there before the battle. It, oh, for sure. Well, it, I mean, it's it, uh, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Billy. Go ahead. No, it's like it's really cool, too. I mean, I kind of like you guys know when we do these episodes, I kind of leave up the screen as we're going and you kind of can just see it's just the different types of helmets, the kind of tribalism of, of them. And like you said, it isn't that they're one united army under this man they really do seem to be individuals who all are there willingly which is very different than we're used to seeing with orcs in the two trilogies we've seen before yeah adar definitely doesn't seem like the worst leader we've ever seen in lord of the rings i mean other than occasionally exposing a few orcs to sunlight he seems like a pretty good guy He's like, if you watch The Walking Dead, he's like the Negan of the series, right? Yeah, that's a great metaphor. (laughs) You know, Negan, you know, for as bad as he was and killing Glenn and Abraham in the series and then Glenn in the books. But it's like, you know, he's doing what he's doing to protect his people, to show, you know, his dominance. And that's kind of like what Adar is doing here. But like with the planting of the seeds, that that's definitely an elvish thing that's kind of carried over with him because uh, Aaron Deer mentions the exact same thing later in the episode. Yep, yep, we we do get it later in the episode between Aaron Deer and Bronwyn and she even says the exact words, new life and defiance of death. Um so pretty wild that that that's uh kind of comes back around there. And, and that also Bronwyn would be a, a, aware of what the words were. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that part I, really paid off on second and third watches, too. I kind of find, too, though, it is an interesting, in my opinion, a little bit of a dichotomy. We know that they're like kind of looking to establish a home of their own and to be free. And you see the planting of the seeds. But then what we kind of see the final actions of the episode being like, do you guys kind of feel like it's an interesting kind of contradiction planting and then kind of destroying at the end it's it is absolutely a contradiction and i didn't even think of that before billy because this is i mean he's he he was born and and raised an elf but he is you know we come to find out that he identifies as an uruk now and they're not about planting things so it is kind of interesting that that this elven tradition has hung on despite the fact that he is clearly not really an elf anymore 
makes him so cool. It makes him so interesting to see more of him, hopefully. <laughs> How badass was that gauntlet he was wearing, too? Mm-hmm. Just I, I love his armor in general. It's very cool looking in in um even if it if it takes just some like behind the scenes featurette or something, I hope we get some more info on on that because I'm still really curious on what the markings on the breastplate mean. I was just wondering that if we were going to get some kind of uh, doc at the end of this series or uh, how much Amazon did behind the scenes of the filming of all this, if we'll get any of that material. I hope we do. Yeah, same here. It would be really, really awesome. And, and you know, they've sunk so much budget into this, these rich backgrounds and locations and, and costumes and stuff. That it, it, they've certainly got enough meat to to make a meal out of a documentary. Oh, for sure. I mean, anybody who has the extended editions know that obviously the films are the main event, but the appendices and the behind the scene documentaries are hours and hours and hours long. And those were still some of my favorite things as a teenager growing up watching the Jackson films. And even on my recent rewatch of the Hobbit extended editions, I watched the appendices. They are really awesome. And I feel like it'd be really interesting to see how somebody else went in and had to kind of tackle this beast it was an uphill climb i mean from the moment this was announced it was a lot of negativity and a lot of skepticism so would love to see how they were able to kind of manage that day to day along with covid hitting during the filming of the first season well disney's had success with like the behind the scenes featurettes and things like that on their service so it would make sense for them to put something out there on their service about the making of this series, unless it was a very, and we don't, I, I, I don't know, unless it was a very difficult kind of process and they don't want to kind of release that information. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a troubled production. Yeah. That's <laughs> everybody I, telling stories like that. I, I hope that's not the case. And I hope we get this because I think it'd be incredible. Oh, absolutely. The cast seems very like united while this is going on in promotion. I mean, obviously they're being paid to promote it, but it does feel very genuine that they really like each other. Yeah, good deal because they still got a few more seasons ahead of them. <laughs> yeah. And as a quick aside, the the composer uh, Bear McCreary, he's written multiple blogs during the airing of the series. I don't know if you guys have checked these out, but. You can find him on his Twitter or on his Facebook. Uh, they're really fascinating blogs about being inside of his head, composing all the music. Oh, sweet. Yeah, I, I did not know about that. I didn't either, but I mean, definitely would add that now to my read list. So, um, Yeah, so now the, the orcs uh, march on the tower and they get there and they find that it is uh, deserted. And we see a Rondier kind of hiding and, and spying on him, but he's really the only person in the tower that we see. And we, we get this really interesting scene too, where Waldrig kind of musters up the courage and he, he asks Adar what happened to Sauron and, and Adar gets this look on his face, like he's going to answer him, but then is interrupted by an orc before he can respond. Do you guys think that he was going to like tell Waldrig what was up? Uh, I, I, I felt like, Again, I've been of the opinion he is not a super fan of Sauron from kind of what I inferred was that Sauron went to go about his way and was more worried about his own plan and not worried about us. And maybe I, I do think the next line could have been something where, like, he doesn't appear who he is or something to allude to him being a shapeshifter. I felt like that was coming uh, and 
man, I was pissed that we didn't get that next line. I I never got the feeling that he was going to tell him in that moment. I and maybe I'm wrong here, uh, but I think that he's he's been putting Waldrig through these tests to find out exactly 100 percent is this guy loyal. And I think what Waldrig does towards the end of the episode has now proven to him that he is 100 percent loyal to what they were trying to accomplish. And that now, if they could have that conversation, it would happen. Um, but it, just like he made him slice, what is it, Rowan's throat in the last yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. It's just another test. And I, I feel like he's he's maybe putting him through the same test that he had to go through in order to, to um, be accepted. Because, you know, this guy was an elf at one time. And, you know... We do find out things about him later on in this episode, and I'm sure it took a while for him to break, you know, and for him to... I think that he thinks his eyes are open now, right? You know, like... Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because he's he's totally been turned over to Morgoth's side, you know, and I'm assuming that it happened to him in the in the first age if he was one of these first elves that were caught and and the the, the orcs were bred from him, then... You know, for sure, he's had to have been around for a long time, and okay. I don't know. It, it would almost been funny if he would have said something like Sauron. Ed, not a fan of that guy. Stop asking about him. <laughs> but go back to go back to our episode three, and I said that I believe that Adar was, if not the first, one of the first elves that were captured and tortured by Morgoth, and that's where we got the that's where we got the orcs. Yep, absolutely. And that that is confirmed later on in this episode. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so um, I, I love this part here. We see a Rondir spring his trap that he's got going there. He, he pops up and fires off some arrows and then drops down on the other side of the gate to the tower and kicks off this block that's got a chain attached to it. And the chain is attached to this big wooden beam that comes flying forward and it bars the doors shut from the inside, effectively locking a bunch of the orcs and Adar inside. And then he fires off a flaming arrow that uh, hits uh, like this wooden like block and tackle that's up on the tower. And you see all these like metal braces around the tower and all these braces start falling off and you realize that wow this tower was this was really the only thing holding it up and so the tower starts crumbling down around and we get these really excellent scenes of all these massive blocks dropping down raining all over these orcs and smashing them going down the hillside outside the tower where you see this giant line of torchlights just snaking their way um uh, switchbacking up the side of the cliff and so it takes out quite a bit of the army and then zooms out and we see Bronwyn and her people safely watching the tower collapse from a distance. Dude, what and, about the big fucking like like the the wood beam that splits? Oh, yeah. The, the, and, the, the, that impales that orc. Yeah, it was almost like a like a, like a wooden javelin went down and just impaled that dude into the ground. It was amazing. Awesome. That was incredible. Um, I, I feel like this scene really took it up a notch on violence and bloodiness in, in, in this world as well. Um, because we'd had some opportunities in previous episodes where, you know, think back to when, um, uh, a Ron Deere's buddy that I'm blanking on his name right now, 
uh, Makor maybe, um, that he got his throat slit by that orc in in the third episode in the pit. And, yeah, and almost no blood. And so we, I, I think we even kind of speculated that oh maybe they're they're gonna you know kind of pull back a little bit. And I think this episode <laughs> definitely shows that they're not really pulling back much. And and yeah, that was one of the first scenes in this one where where it was kind of like a wow, that was really brutal. Uh, seeing this giant giant piece of wood come down like a giant splinter and just totally take this guy out. Did you notice? I think the, there are a lot. Oh, sorry. The the one orc that was like telling people to spread out and look for them sounded like the head Urukai from the Fellowship of the Rings. Like I love the way the voice sounded very familiar to like the Jackson Urukai. Yeah, I had had that same take on that, that that orc sounded familiar. He sounded like the orcs from the Jackson films. Yeah. Was that like Lertz? Lertz? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a smart move, too. I think it would be distracting to have them sound radically different than they sounded in the Peter Jackson movie. So, yeah. And as far as the blood, like, I agree. This is pretty violent. I also think they're a little bit more willing to let orc blood flow than they are humans and elves. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there is that. Yeah, because the the blood the orc blood is coming out black, so it is markedly different from from human blood. So a little bit of that, and that that's always kind of been the way in television and movies. Like you can get away with a little bit more when it's not the the human looking things that are getting gutted. Oh, for sure. Um, what did you think of with the the tower coming down with? It, it just took one rope to snap and that entire tower was going to fall. Like, is is this like the pinnacle of Elven like maintenance? Like what's going on here? I think they got it ready. Like they prepared. Oh, it that's to a do really, that. that's how I thought it was. <laughs> I was just thinking like, God damn, you need to put a few more ropes around this thing. If it only takes one, one key strand to break. But yeah, that makes sense. They would have had it prepared. Yeah. I don't think it was like designed like the death star, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> I think they set it up. They planned this out, right? Yeah, they had to have. That, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I can click back to one of the old episodes and see if the tower has the thing holding it together. <laughs> well, I'm I'm assuming at some point the elves had to have put all that metal bracing around it just to keep the thing from crumbling and falling. Um, but anyway, we jump now to the Sundering Seas and we see Isildur uh, having a hard time sleeping and he wakes up and he goes and visits his horse Beric and shares an apple with him, which which I thought was pretty adorable. Until he went and threw the thing in the ocean. And then it was like, why didn't you feed the rest of that to Beric? He probably wanted more than just a bite. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's starving families in Middle Earth, and you're just throwing apples into the ocean. (laughs) How hard are apples to come by on Middle Earth? Um, So he goes up on deck, and uh, he speaks with Galadriel. And she can see Middle Earth already, and Isildur is super impressed by this. And he remarks and says, keen are the eyes of the elves. And I thought that was just incredible that he was basically like, you can see it. And she's like, I've been able to see it for the last hour. You're going to see it in a few minutes here. I love how they are very subtle, but it's really cool, interesting moments where we get to see the elves heightened senses, just like we've got to see with Elrond and Casa Doom about the kind of eavesdropping and, and vice versa when, when he was eavesdropped on. So again, it's a, 
these these elves like Elrond and Galadriel that are old and have a relative high standing, they they just there isn't a bragginess about it. It's just kind of it's eloquent in a way. It's really interesting, and I love the performances when they do mention them. Honestly, I thought it was a little bit of a humble brag, Billy. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know. I think it's cool. I don't know. It's just so like I guess you can take it like a humble brag to me. It's just so like second nature to them, though. I, I don't know. It's I've, I took it a different way, but obviously could take it that way, too. Or she could have just said, yes, I can. Like adding <laughs> that she's been able to see it for an hour is definitely crossing over to the humble brag territory, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> I don't and, think uh, Galadriel is beneath a humble brag here and there. I think that's already kind of been shown. Oh, for sure. Especially in this in at this point in her life, too. Mm-hmm. Um, now, she does remark that uh, as keen as her eyes are, this is the first time that she's spotted a seal door. And so she they have a little bit of a conversation. She asks what his rank is, and, and he says that he's a stable sweep. And they, they talk a little bit more, and she asks him why he's along. And the seal door says that he wanted to get away from Numenor. Because it isn't a real Numenor any longer. And Galadriel's got a cool bit of dialogue here. She says it exists still, if only in the heart of the lowliest stable sweep. And then Isildur gives her his name, and she then realizes that that this is Elendil's son. And I just like the way that this whole interaction between Galadriel and Isildur broke down. Because at the beginning of it, she didn't know that she was talking to Elendil's son. And I thought it was cool that it wasn't until the end of the conversation that she figured that out. Oh, for sure. I mean, it makes those connections much more genuine and it is going to inform again. They're obviously going to have a lot to do with one another, probably throughout the series. And those are going to be some of the main interactors. So it's really cool that that's their first meeting. And when she meets him, he is in that humble position. I loved it because yeah. it was, it's like we never saw these two interact in the in the Jackson movies. So it's it was really cool to kind of see like how these two interact with one another. I, I I thought that that was incredible. Yeah. Especially since the first time she's meeting him, like he's just, you know, little more than a boy. Like he's so newly come into manhood that, you know, the, and to, to know the future of that character and it, it, it does make it for a very humble beginning here. And uh, we see a Lendil approach and then a Sealder takes his leave and uh, Galadriel asks about his mother, and Isildur doesn't answer her right away. He says that he's always looked forward, looked to the east for the dawn, and then looked to the west for the sunset. But though they're sailing to the east, he feels like they're sailing into darkness. And then he just kind of simply tells Galadriel that that Isildur's mother drowned. Yeah, yeah. Um... Which is like you know when Isildur is looking out of the uh, out out of the sh- from the ship. I think it was episode three, and he hears like a voice calling him like to the west. And we thought you know that might be his mother's voice. It kind of made sense then that 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 she died out at sea. Then right, if if we're to believe yeah. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we get uh, some map talk with Elendil and Muriel, and Muriel wants to know how far away they are. They're they're basically two days away at this point. Elendil says a full day's sail into the mountains, and from there another day's ride east into the Vale. 
So Muriel tells him to spread word to the other ship captains to make all possible haste. Do you think there was any time bending going on with the uh, cutting from what's going on with Southland to this voyage? Like, are these happening concurrently? I don't think fully concurrently. I mean, I, I think they're allowing for a sense of just by, I think when they show those map shots and things like that to kind of allow for the fact that there could be decent time passage between, but that has been one thing that's interesting. I mean, remember we got that email from a, a listener that is still convinced. Well, I'm sure now probably isn't anymore that a lot of these timelines were happening, that these, a lot of these storylines were happening in different timelines. So maybe there can be the kind of in between of these little mini time jumps. I'm not trying to be that extreme about it, but I do think they were playing with time to ramp up the suspense of whether or not they would make it to the Southland in time. We didn't make they they did. Okay, when we're watching Arondir and battle the orcs and stuff like that, we're not watching that over a two day period. So they're definitely doing some Christopher Nolan Dunkirk time Mm -hmm. stuff here. So exactly, we're just seeing like the hits, the highlights of the journey to uh, Middle Earth from the Numenorians point uh, in, in the story. So, yes, I mean, we're thinking they're two days out, that they're, they might not get there in time. And just to create – the showrunners are probably just doing this to create a little bit of suspense for the viewer. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I I figured it was just there to build tension because, I mean, we all have a fairly good idea that they're going to make their they're going to make it there and and provide the tipping point to the battle. And, you know, they've got to they've got to sow some tension into this. Um, So we get back to the Southlands and we see a Rondier trying to break the key, uh, but to no avail. Like he is just bashing away on this thing with a hammer and actually breaks the head off the hammer before even putting a dent in this key. Uh, so he decides that he's going to go and hide the key and Bronwyn asks him where, and he's like, nobody can know, uh, you know, not even you, but we do see Theo watching and listening like just beyond them in the background. Um, and that's definitely setting up some foreshadowing <laughs> that, that uh, you know, Rondier might think that he's going to be the only one who knows where this is. But we all know that Theo's going to know where it's at, too. It reminded um, me of like Gollum just looking at, you know, Frodo's ring every time it popped out of his shirt, you know, <laughs> like, it was uh, absolutely because like, yeah, like, <laughs> this is very much his precious. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I it made me think of Bilbo and just how he couldn't let go and had such a hard time. And, and part of me wonders if Theo wouldn't have oversaw or overheard this if he wouldn't have had a deep enough connection already to just be able to locate the key anyway. That's an interesting. Ooh, I like that. But this was an this wasn't a good Theo episode. Theo definitely trended back down a little bit for me this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you got some good licks in on the fighter uh, later on, though. I think when we get to the final actions, it ends up being a little net negative. <laughs> I, I was high on Theo this episode. I thought he did some impressive, um, impulsive, you know, surgical maneuvers later on in the episode that I thought, you know, would have been very hard to do. <laughs> I, um, I mean, <laughs> we'll sorry, get to ahead. it. We'll get to it. <laughs> Uh, we see uh, a shot of an orc head on a pole, which I don't know about you guys, but I just continually 
love the practical effects on all these orcs. It looks so good. And and just seeing that severed orc head on a pole and like the squishing sound, like ugh, just so gnarly. Um, and we see the Southlanders are fortifying their village during the light of the day. Uh, they're filling in tunnels where they can and boarding up other ones and piling rocks on top. Uh, they're they're smithing swords and, and getting them sharpened up, getting arrows all piled up on top of the the, the buildings. And this whole time we're getting a voiceover of of Arondir and Bronwyn that are explaining the plan. And Arondir is telling them that it's going to be very important that they've got to wait for all the orcs to cross the bridge and get into the village before they spring their trap and that this is going to test their resolve. But but he knows they can do it. And, and like and then this is kind of a, an interesting parallel to what we got with Adar giving like a rousing speech to his troops. And now we got Arondir on his side kind of doing the same thing and getting these people psyched up for a battle. And, uh, of course, Theo wants to fight, and Bronwyn's telling him he has to go in the tavern with the others. And and I thought there was a really good bit of dialogue here where Theo asks his mom to tell him the, the what she would say to him when he was a child and he was scared. And she says, in the end, the shadow is but a passing thing. There's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Find the light and the shadow will not find you. And I I, know, I just I thought that was really, really beautiful. And I'm wondering if it's going to have more to do, like if there's going to be some hidden meaning in that later, that is there some sort of darkness where he's going to have to try and find some sort of light so that he doesn't get drawn further into it. Yeah, I could see him repeating this mantra to himself later on under certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah, I could absolutely see a storyline going that way. I I love the idea of that. And the message is great. I mean, the idea is that like you need to search for hope. You need to search for joy. You need to search for happiness in your life, because if you don't cling on to the things like that, you know, darkness will take you. Sadness will take you. And it, again, it, it's a very human message in this very fantastical world. And that's why it's so great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we see a Rondier and Bronwyn having a heart to heart. Uh, he's still carrying the Alfred seeds that Bronwyn had given him in the first episode. And Arondir shows her this this tradition, the same one that we saw Adar doing at the beginning of the episode. And he plants one and Bronwyn replies new life and defiance of death. And and then he gets a little bit more serious and, and Arondir starts telling Bronwyn of his his plans for their future together after the battle. And and they have this nice little moment where he takes her hand and puts it on a tree and and it, it it almost felt like a, a bit of a bonding ceremony in a way, right? Like maybe this is something to do with elves. And I don't know, maybe I'm reading into it more than, than what's really there. I was very afraid that it meant certain doom for one of them in the impending <laughs> battle. Of course, right? Whenever characters say, you know, it's it, it it's Ned Stark telling Jon Snow, we'll, we'll talk when I get back. Uh, I'll yeah. tell you, we'll talk about your mother when I get back. You know, it's, <laughs> it's never going to happen. And so, uh, Billy, I had that same thought during this scene. I was like, no, you never tell somebody about the, the, the plans you're going to make after the big battle. <laughs> and um, and so then uh, they we, we get that nice scene and then they kiss and uh, we see the sunset and the moon rise and all the villagers now are, are waiting in the dark for this attack that they know is coming. And in the distance, we see one first one torch show up and then 
and then many. And and now there's just many, many torches moving towards their village in the darkness. And uh, we see them all starting to come in. They're getting past the bridge. And, and Bronwyn is stationed with an, another villager. And she's kind of up on a hill above the bridge next to a wagon that's piled up with hay that is soaked in oil. And she's trying to light it on fire and it's, it's not going well. The, the, they're not getting their Flint to properly spark. And an orc comes up with a torch to investigate and Bronwyn tries to fight it off the best she can, uh, ends up getting her friend at the wagon killed, but then takes out the orc and uses his torch to light the wagon. And then she cuts the rope for it and, it goes screaming down the hill and crashes into the bridge and explodes in fire. And we get this great scene with an orc laughing out loud and saying, the bleeding fools missed us. And then he gets immediately splatted by a second fiery wagon, um, which officially uh, effectively creates like this kill box where all these orcs are trapped in town in the middle of town. They're surrounded by buildings on either side and fire on other end and and now a rondier and all these archers up on top of the rooftops stand up and they just start raining arrows down on all these orcs and uh th- this scene was just it was wild i i couldn't i mean the action that we the immediately picks up in this scene and starts to go like it just blew my mind like um I, I couldn't believe it was this brutal with, with all the arrows and stuff raining down. And then we see some of the orcs break loose and head for the tavern with or tavern with a battering ram. And then the villagers rush in. like They're yelling like, you know, for the Southlands and and just running at these orcs. And then we get this crazy fight sequence with a rondier that starts up on top of the roof of the the tavern where these orcs sneak up behind him and take out the archer next to him. He manages to kill one of the orcs while they're falling off the roof, takes out another one on the ground, and then he's all exhausted and kind of backing up and backs into the biggest damn orc I've ever seen. Like, this thing makes the, the Saruman's Urukai, like, look small, right? I mean, yeah. I... He's I, huge. He was a brick house. I thought it was, like, the, the orc's version of the big show. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, he throws him through a fence, launches like ragdolls all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that is the exact phrase that I have in my notes, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Giant orc proceeds to ragdoll a rondeer. <laughs> just to rewind one second, I, I really appreciated the the wagon Bronwyn scene. I thought it was one of the smarter scenes of the whole episode. I I like it when a character makes a plan and the plan doesn't go perfectly. Like it just made the battle feel so much more real. It wasn't like, okay, here's our master plan. We're going to light this wagon on fire and roll it down the hill. The fact that we spent time on showing that an orc actually caught up to them. They were in some serious heavy danger. I mean, in some ways, Bronwyn accidentally became the, the first line of defense in this scene. And I just thought it was a really great way to kick off this whole sequence. And really, it just raised the stakes for me right from the beginning of this action sequence. Bronwyn had her Doc Brown moment where like the cord became unplugged. And Marty is flying <laughs> down the street and he's got to get the cord uh, plugged back in, but it's caught in a tree. And she's totally. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the way that a rondeer, it, it was cut so that it almost looked like 
he was watching from the rooftop away with his awesome keen elf sight, seeing that she's struggling. And it's like, how about you shoot that orc with an arrow, buddy? But, you know, then the scene wouldn't have worked out the way it did. I, um, I knew from the instant that orc was holding like that torch, that that torch was going to be <laughs> what they're going to use to light it. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and talk and, about and, the foley work on the arrows. Every time one of them arrows connected, oh, that sound effect really fucking drove that shit home. Oh yeah, and the same with the giant orcs' um, uh, footsteps, like oh, thundering yeah. into the ground, where it just made it seem like this thing's just even all that much larger. And and man, like Arondir's really, really putting up a good effort against this guy. Like Arondir's got some really, really good fight moves. He can move around. And but as soon as that orc catches him, like it's over and like basically just catches him with a full on punch right to the face that staggers him. And then this orc just starts picking up a and just tossing him. And at one point, a picks up a, a big splinter of wood from the ground. He stabs the orc in the foot and then the leg and then jabs it in the orc's left eye and then just leaves it there. And then this orc picks up a and he's like choking him. And then Arondir manages to, like, get a hand on that splinter of wood sticking out of the orc's eye. The orc pulls the splinter out himself and is about to stick it through Arondir's eye. And this is one of the gnarliest, grossest scenes that we've got yet, with all of this black orc blood pouring out of this thing's gouged-out eyeball and basically dripping right into Arondir's mouth. Um, I don't know about you guys, but that shit horrified me. I have it right now. It's like a faucet. It's just squirting continuously <laughs> out. It is, and it, when he takes his hand and puts it over a Rondier's hand to pull it off, it is just so. Like you said, you've never seen an OP orc like this guy. Yeah, yeah. Th- this part was totally gnarly. And then uh, eventually, we see a, a a sword tip come out this guy's throat as uh, Bronwyn kills the orc from behind, saving a Rondier. and. Cheers are up from the villagers, and it seems as though they've won the battle uh, so far. And Rondir is taking a walk through the village, and he's kind of looking at at one of the the dead orcs near him. And he goes up and gets a closer look and puts a hand under the man's chin where his his throat was cut and finds out that the blood is red. This this isn't an orc, it's a man. And he very hesitantly lifts, lifts off the helm and sure enough it's a it's a man's face underneath it's not an orc and then the villagers start pulling masks off all these other dead and we get uh treadwill says we weren't fighting orcs we were fighting our own and arondir starts looking around in the darkness with a panicked look on his face and then arrows start coming in from the dark uh we see treadwell get hit with a couple arrows uh, Bronwyn gets hit with an arrow through the back of her shoulder that it's a, like a, basically a through and through it comes out the other side and villagers are just dropping like flies as they are now rushing for their lives to get inside the safety of the tavern. Um, man, what, what a turnaround. Did, did you guys see this coming? I mean, we kind of speculated on this last week, uh, joking, saying that Adar was going to send them as basically wall fodder to be the first wave of the attack. And that's exactly what happened. 
No, they they hit it well up until the reveal. Like, did did I think it was a possibility? Yes, but during the moment, was I thinking they were slaughtering their own? Not until the reveal, honestly. Yeah, same. I I didn't think it was men either because they emphasized so much on that large orc fight that I just same thing. Like, even though we had talked about this, I was just like, wow. But again, it was a stunned Pikachu moment for me where I literally was just that sinister bastard. Like, what a good plan. And then the scene like you're talking about when the arrows start to rain in gave me vibes of like a an old school like war movie, like a Saving Private Ryan or a Black Hawk Down, where all of a sudden they're being rained upon from all sides and time seems to slow down and there really doesn't seem like a pathway out. I, I just thought the scene was done really well. Man, when, whenever I'm watching scenes like this, I can't help but put myself in those characters' shoes and just think about how absolutely awful it must be to get hit by a fucking arrow. Like a, a wooden arrow with like a broadhead on it, like sticking out of you. Like that'd just be so awful. And and they, they did that very well in this scene. It was used to good effect. And uh, as they're falling back to the keep, uh, the, their keep, as they call it, the tavern, um, we see orcs just pouring out of the woods. And they bolt and barricade the doors. And Bronwyn's in really bad shape. And she's telling Theo to to take care of treadwell first and they give him a look and he's he hasn't made it he's 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 lying on the table next to bronwyn dead um and so uh bronwyn tells theo that he's got to stop the bleeding or she's gonna die and arondir snaps the the arrowhead off and then grabs the the shaft and pulls it out of her body and this is the scene where this has got to be the bloodiest scene in in any Tolkien thing that we've gotten in live action yet, because we're just seeing this blood pouring out of her wound, running between the boards of the bench that she's or the table that she's laying on and dripping on the floor. And then Arondir remembers that he's got these these Alfred seeds and they're they're good for healing. And so he puts some alpha alfred seeds in the wound and then has theo cauterize it shut and they have to do this times two because she does have a wound on the front and on the back and uh this whole scene was was just so so visceral and and so gross and on top of that you know this this heart to heart that we had between arondir and bronwyn earlier there was a part of me that was really thinking oh man this might be the end for her and and if yeah. it does, you I know, that a couple times. Yeah. Right. And and I was thinking about how that would maybe affect Theo and, and what that could mean for his future. And um, but no, Bronwyn does kind of wake back up. And uh, so she she's not quite dead yet. Um, did did but... we not talk about the kiss? Oh, no, we had that earlier. Oh. I, I guess we did just kind of breeze past it, though. Yeah, like that's a big moment, right? <laughs> <laughs> Brian's like, let's get back to the real action. Well, I'm, yeah. I mean, it definitely answered our speculation as to whether or not anything like that had ever happened. That definitely was their first kiss. It was very much implied. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it seemed like a first kiss to me, too. Hmm. Actually, I, I didn't. And now that you're saying it, you probably were right. I, I had just taken it like just the first time we're seeing it on screen. But I think that would definitely make it much more significant of a moment. Obviously, I don't think Arondir has much game. I don't think he was ever like 
proposing that to happen up until like all this threat was above them. I've never seen anything from either of them before this that would imply that they've ever kissed before. Like agreed. Even before this, he was talking to her and, and, and he's, he admitted that he's never been able to say anything with his words. He's only been able to kind of say it with his actions and like with the way he, that he looks at her. And so this is the first move that he's ever put on her as far as like any sort of like romantic affection, like touch. I mean, so it was, yeah, it was a big moment. I don't, I thought we kind of glazed over it. <laughs> so no, I think definitely in that context, that is fair. And again, it does unfortunately give me that super fear that something's going to happen in the next few episodes to at least separate them for a while, because it's just usually how these stories work. So I'm definitely on. I agree. I don't think Robin's out of danger either. Well, listen, I'm just thinking of, I'm still in full thinking that Theo could eventually become the witch King. And, you know, what happened when Anakin's mother died? I'm just saying. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too, that if Bronwyn dies, what does that mean for Theo's future? Is that going to be his turn to evil? Because we've seen him kind of start to turn towards good. He had that that great talk with Arondir in the last episode. And so I could see that happening to where if he loses his mother, he does take a turn towards evil. Um, so, yeah, they hear the orcs gathering outside as Adar approaches and a battering ram is being brought to bear against the door. And then we get a really brief shot of the Numenorians racing onward. They're now on horseback and they are on their way. Uh, I love these shots. It was so good, right? I love it. Like Just the right amount of slow-mo, uh, the, the, the foley work with the... The the thundering of the horse's hooves was so great. We get that multiple times in this episode. I just like that it's also you're showing it that it's first light. It's like the steam coming off of the ground on the rolling shot when the horses are coming in. It's it just again, you can't you don't see these type of shots on other shows. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that that budget with that uh, that on location shooting. I think I would have preferred this scene actually got cut. Um, I I thought it was a gorgeous scene and I agree with the sound effects and everything, but I was not like really thinking about this angle while I was in the thick of it in the Southlands. And I, I don't know, this instantly made me think everything was going to be okay before I feel like I should have been thinking everything was going to be okay. Okay. I could see that. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you think if we had just got them showing up at the battle that that you would have liked to have seen a different shot between them on the, you know, in the Sundering Sea earlier? I was and, fine with I was fine with the early episode shot because it, it felt like a normal episode where we're, we're going to cut and see what everyone's up to. But it would have been nice to to not have seen this second build up shot. I thought it was a little bit excessive on reminding me what was about to happen. Cool. So you'd have been okay with just cutting from the ship and then just cutting to them racing into the village. Next time you already know you're racing, racing into the village. I think that would have been a little bit tighter and better. Okay. I got that, especially from the angle to say that it's, it's cutting the tension too early. I mean, they could show Uh, up and everybody's dead, you know? So (laughs) (laughs) that would have been better than the shot too. It's just an orc chewing on a femur. 
<laughs> oh man, how harrowing would that have been? Too late. <laughs> There's always that one orc like still alive to you know really rub the uh, salt in the wound. It seems like in these Lord of the Rings shows and movies. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I skipped right over that that one earlier too. That that when they noticed that they had killed all their you know the there they'd killed the people that had left the day before the one orc was laughing about it as he lay there dying um and so we see the orcs break into the tavern and adar enters and he asks rondier for the key uh rondier tells him that if he lets everybody go he will consider it and dude, i thought the orcs they be just very casually begin killing villagers at a nod from adar the way that he just slowly pushes his sword through that one, that first guy like that, that was so chilling to me to just do something so horrible, so casually. And, and yeah, they just start doing that very, very just no chill with these orcs. <laughs> they just start killing people. And as soon as Bronwyn becomes threatened, that's when Theo jumps up and says that he knows where it's at. And, 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 it almost felt like in that moment that Bronwyn was looking at a Rondier with a look of like understanding on her face. Like, I get it. I get that. You can't tell him where this is at, that we will lose if you tell him where it's at. And, you know, of course, Theo's not willing to sacrifice his mom. And, and he pulls up a stone in the floor and pulls the, the, this, um, the key out and it's, it's wrapped up in this bundle and Adar takes it and he has a very reverent look on his face and he walks outside and says, Waldrig, I have a task for you. And just then the Numenorians come racing into the village. Um, yeah, you know, the more I think about this, Jake, I, I think I'm kind of more on your side that as cool as that shot was, maybe they should have left it out because there really wasn't too much that happened in between that and this. Yeah, it seemed like they pulled the trigger a little bit early on that reveal. And I mean, like I said, I agree. It's a gorgeous shot and you could definitely see the money. But I don't know. It just felt like it was there for the sake of looking cool. And it really kind of eased the tension a little bit for me. Yeah, actually, it's a fair complaint, I think. I mean, now kind of looking at it and watching along again as we're reviewing this, it, it, it I guess like you said, Jake, it's like it would have been cool to maybe just hear the shaking of the horses from the outside or to hear a horn or, you know, and listen, yeah, we've seen that before in Lord of the Rings films, but guess what? Like it works and it would be a kind of a cool callback to say so like Gandalf that. showing up at Helm's yes. Deep. I mean, Game of Thrones has pulled the trick too with Stannis showing up at the wall. Like it, it's, I know it's a little bit of a trope, but I, I, I think sometimes when things are tropes, it's because they work really well. Yeah, true. True, especially in a, genre, in a genre like this. Do you guys think – I have a question for all you guys. Do you guys think had Theo not known where the key was, was Bronwyn and Arondir, were they willing to both die right then and there before saying anything? I think so. I think so. Wow. Yeah, he's yeah a- I just don't know. I can't. I can't decide. Like maybe if they were holding Theo hostage, would they have said something? Yeah, I mean, what would it have taken? I mean, they barely know what this thing is, or all they know is how much it's desired by the opposing forces. Yeah, and and I think it makes the most amount of sense the way they did it. So this character that's younger, so, you know, he doesn't have as 
as big of a picture on it as Iran Deer and Bronwyn do. And, you know, he's just primarily concerned about his mother. So it, it kind of makes sense that it, it, you know, turned out the way that it did. <clears throat> um, but with the, when the Numenorians come racing in, Right away, I loved the the bit with the chains strung between the horses, taking out the orcs, and then hooking one of them and dragging them through. And I mean, these Numenorians are just running through, and it really shifts the the balance of the fight, or the the power balance here, because you know they're attacking from from up on horseback. They've got superior weapons and armor, and they are making pretty quick work of this. But um, we see. Uh, this really great bit with uh, Galadriel dodging an arrow by hanging off her saddle and then kind of almost like still hanging sideways, upside down, cutting an orc in half as she races past. I thought that we got some really, really great uh, Galadriel doing some amazing fight stuff in this. Galadriel's awesome. That Those side things, even with the, the spear throw, she does it again. And then with the pursuit and being able to just go through the heavy woods like that. And again, also obviously coming up Halbrand as well being awesome. But Galadriel has been such an awesome surprise. I wasn't sure. Like we kind of talked about in the very first episode, like watching the trailers. We're like, is this going to be campy? Is she going to be eye rolly? And we're not going to like this. But I, for her fault, so I think Galadriel is just a certified badass. I, yeah. One of my favorite moments was Theo's reaction to her as well. As well. I thought that was that was great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like he instantly stops being racist towards elves in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy shit. Like, just thunderstruck by how, you know, beautiful and powerful she is. And um, uh, we see Valendil uh, dive off his horse, tackling an orc, and he loses his helmet in the process. I love that he stabs this orc through the chest with his sword, and then he twists the blade, just like Galadriel taught him. In, in the last episode and we see Antimo, he gets pulled from his horse. He is clearly not the warrior that his buddy is. And uh, Valandil has to go over and save him. Uh, Muriel is watching from a distant hilltop with a retinue of guards, including a seal doer who is just chomping at the bit. You can tell that he's very worried about his friends and his father that, you know, they're down there in this fight and he's just up on a hilltop watching and Muriel kind of sees this in him and she tells him to go and he races into the fight and we see Elendil fighting and looks to be getting overwhelmed. And the way that they have this cut with a sealed racing to, to get to him and in a sealed getting taken down, his mount uh, gets toppled over and an orc is about to strike him. And then a spear takes out the orc that was thrown by Halbrand and we get, um, uh, Alendil uh, and uh, Isildur having a little bit of a conversation with Isildur, you know, being very worried. I think when he saw his father go down, he he in his eyes he was seeing his father die, and Alendil was basically telling him that you know, no, I'm okay. And uh, we get then a scene of Galadriel and Arondir meeting. And I thought what was really interesting here is that Galadriel immediately calls him soldier. And if we recall, when Arondir first met Adar, that was the same moniker that Adar addressed him as when they first met. And so I thought that that was a really interesting parallel between Galadriel and, and Adar, which we get kind of more of that later in the episode. 
Um, but she asks where their commander is, and we see Adar um, uh, getting ready to mount a horse, and he's got the bundle in his hand. And Arondir tells Galadriel that uh, Adar must not be allowed to escape with the bond with the bundle. And yeah, that's when she gives chase, and we get the great scene with Theo asking, "Who's that?" and the the way that they cut that as well, like showing Galadriel immediately doing something totally badass where this orc throws a spear at her and she just holds onto the pommel of her saddle and just hops off to the side to let the spear go past, then immediately just jumps back in the saddle. Um, love seeing all of the, the elven prowess and just the way they can move. Like that was one of my favorite parts with Legolas in, in the Peter, the Peter Jackson movies is just seeing all the different things that he could do as an elf that men could not do. I mean, from something as simple as walking on top of snow to how badass he is on the battle of the Pelliner fields. Like when he's taken out the, the giant Ollie fans, um, you know, the, these elves, if they've been trained for battle, they are very, very good at it. And, and all the times we see Galadriel in this, it's like, she's truly in her element when the sword is in her hand. And we really see that in this battle. Um, the, uh, no, no, pass that. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so many bullet points. Um, uh, so Halbrand sees Galadriel right away and he also gives chase grabbing a spear along the way. And we get this great chase scene with Adar fleeing through the woods on horseback and Galadriel doing everything she can. Um, she's like leaning forward and putting her hand on the neck of her mountain, saying things in Elvish, um, just clearly, giving everything she can to just give this mount as much speed as possible. And Halbrand circled around to approach him from head on. And we see him and Adar coming closer and closer on their mounts, racing towards each other. And Halbrand leans way down off of his saddle and extends his spear out and trips Adar's horse. And Adar goes flying off, lands on the ground and he's crawling across the ground, reaching out to the bundle. And we see Halvrin's spear just jab right through his hand, pinning his hand to the dirt. And man, so, so brutal. And he turns around and he looks up and Halvrin is standing there with absolute murder in his eyes. And he says, you remember me? And Adar briefly looks at him before saying no. And I thought this was really, really interesting especially when we go back to the the conversation earlier with Galadriel and Isildur on the boat where Isildur is talking about Galadriel's elven eyesight and she says, well, I've never seen you before. So that kind of leads me to believe that elves are pretty good at remembering faces. And why doesn't Adar remember Halbrand's face? Is this more support for the Halbrand is Sauron theory? Yeah, Halbrand, Halbrand clearly remembers Adar. <laughs> clearly <laughs> and um so halbrand raises the spear and screams he's making ready to plunge it into Ad, uh, adar's chest but he's stopped by galadriel and halbrand says you don't know what he did and adar like seemingly just pushing him very calmly says did i cause someone you love pain a woman and a, a slight smile crosses his face and he says perhaps a child does this seem like he's like asking to get stabbed here? No, I think I mean there could be the the chance too that he 
does remember who he is and he is just kind of prodding him along to push his buttons because again we come to find out that this is really a big kind of tactic what he's doing right now yeah and and galadriel talks him down and and she uses the same line that she used in the last episode she says one cannot satisfy thirst with seawater and in the aftermath of this bottle or battle we see the numenorians relaxing around the village and the the orcs we get we see them they're chained up together and they're being kept in the shade but they're they're clearly just seething with anger while they're there all chained up and uh Antimo, Isildur, and Valendil are having a talk and Valendil is telling Isildur that he got him a spot in this company that's going to be going with Galadriel to search the mountains for orcs uh once she's done interrogating their prisoner and as far as Antimo, though, he's he's thinking of staying in the village for a while and helping out because he's seen enough of battle for a lifetime. And boy, just seeing the way that he reacted to battle, like he's clearly no warrior, right? No, not at all. But I mean, I kind of can commend a character for just being like, you know what, this isn't for me. And I'm not going to kind of tr- keep trying to pretend that this is something I feel comfortable with. So it is it's an interesting like thing to actually see in one of these fantasy war type of, you know, mediums. Yeah, absolutely. And we get uh, Galadriel questioning Adar. And she says, when I was a child, I heard stories of elves taken by Morgoth, tortured, twisted, made into a new and ruined form of life. You are one of them, are you not? And she says something in Elvish here. And then she says, the sons of the dark. The first orcs. And Adar says, Uruk. We prefer Uruk. And uh, fun fact, Uruk is black speech for orc. So it's just another word for orc. Um, Galadriel is seeking Sauron. And the way that this shot is framed is fantastic. Because she's talking. And it's showing her from behind with the knife in her hand and it's Adar's gaze is just fixed upon that blade in her hand as she asks, where is Sauron? And Adar chuckles, but doesn't say anything. So Galadriel looks at the knife in her hand and then suggests that she move the prisoners into the sunlight. And, and this, this gets Adar to speak. And, and he says, after Morgoth's defeat, the one you call Sauron devoted himself to healing middle earth, bringing its ruined lands together in perfect order. He sought to craft the power, not of the flesh, but of the flesh, a power of the unseen world. He bid as many as he could follow him far north, but try as he might, something was missing, a shadow of dark knowledge that kept itself hidden, even from him. No matter how much blood he spilt in his pursuit, for my part, I sacrificed enough of my children for his aspirations. I split him open. I killed Sauron. What what did you guys think of this declaration? I liked the kind of confirmation of what we talked about in the premiere two episodes about the kind of unseen land, the unseen world and it being experimentation. So we definitely were on in that respect. I think he believes he killed Sauron, but I think we all kind of know that isn't the case. So again, was this an illusion by Sauron? Did he let him think that he killed him or was there an actual struggle that Sauron maybe got the wrong end of? But I, again, knowing the nature of Sauron, I feel like this is a big deception. Yeah. Yeah. This made me think of, of what we talked about in that first episode when we saw that up there. Um, 
Brian, did you bring that up that you thought that maybe he was he was using those orcs to try and try and find like that that power or or was that, that or was, was that Bi- Billy's that was idea? Billy. Okay. So yeah. I mean, yeah, that's clearly what he was doing. It, but and it's also interesting when we end up seeing what they're able to use the blade for. I am very interested if that was part of Sauron's plan or part of Morgoth's slash Adar's like that. That part to me is still a big mystery. Whose actual setup was that? Well, remember, it was we've learned of Morgoth's uh, contingency plan. Yeah. So this was part of that contingency plan was to create Mordor. So I think right now we might be looking at the power struggle between Adar and Sauron, you know, maybe to be, you know, to take control of, (laughs) of where this is going to go. So, yeah, it's very slick, right. Of Sauron to let Adar handle all the dirty work. And this is a very labor intensive plan as we've seen in, for him to maybe let all this messiness and the hard part happen and then to slip in is super sinister. And so we got Galadriel and Adar now kind of arguing over this and Adar saying, you know, you don't, you don't think that an Uruk could do this. And, and she doesn't believe that, that he's this army's only master. And, and Adar says, my children have no master. And Galadriel says, they're not children, they're slaves. And Adar says, but each one has a name, a heart. And Galadriel counters with a heart created by Morgoth. And Adar says, we are all creations of the one, master of the secret fire, the same as you, as worthy of the breath of life, just as worthy of a home. Soon this land will be ours, then you will understand. And I loved that he brought up the master of the secret fire here, because that is a, a nod to Iluvatar, which is essentially the the god of this world, that, that he's the one that has the secret fire, this this master of the secret fire. And he's the only one that can create life and free will. And and that's what this secret fire is. It's the it's the fire of life. And the the orcs, they weren't actually created with the secret fire because the elves were created with the secret fire and the the orcs were just turned and so it's even though adar is saying this he's he's not technically right because it's the orcs were twisted by dark magic the elves were the ones that were actually created with this secret fire that is a really interesting kind of philosophical debate to have right joe is does (laughs) that count are they as entitled to life as the other species just because they were some could say an evolution when some would say a bastardization, right? But I'm sure that if you went online and went into some of the forums and things like that, I bet there are people that would argue and would agree with Adar's sentiments. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we really see in this next little exchange just how much of the darkness Galadriel has really touched. Because uh, she bends down to Adar's level and says, no, your kind was a mistake made in mockery. And even if it takes me all of this age, I vow to eradicate every last one of you. But you shall be kept alive so that one day before I drive my dagger into your poisoned heart, I will whisper into your piked ear that all of your offspring are dead and the scourge of your kind ends with you. 
And Adar replies and says, it would seem I'm not the only elf that's been transformed by darkness. Perhaps your search for Morgoth's successor should have ended in your own mirror. And and this pushes Galadriel. And she says, perhaps I shall begin by killing you, you slithering orc. And very violently puts her knife to Adar's throat to the point where it actually, you know, cuts him. Like, not full-on slashing him, but there's definitely black blood running down his neck after this. And And I think that the reason she reacted so violently at that was because she couldn't dispute the truth of his words. I agree. She reacted in anger because she, she really felt what he said, like that really hit home. And I think she felt that seed of truth in, in his declaration. And that's definitely why she got so mad. Yep. She's, she knows that she's been affected by the darkness. And, but uh Halbrand stops her. And, and I love that Hadar was so cool during this, that even after He's got a knife to his throat. Halbrand has just stopped her from killing him. And he still has the presence of mind to correct her and say, Uruk, <laughs> not a, not a slithering orc and Uruk. Um, uh, Gal- yeah. Galadriel removes her blade. It shows the shallow cut on his neck and she stands up, picks up the bundle. And you notice that Adar kind of glances at it and gives like a small little smile at the corner of his mouth. And she leaves Halbrand makes to follow and Adar says, who are you? And Halbrand just kind of pauses in the doorway before, before walking away. Um, Now, one thing I want to bring up here, do you, do you think that the Adar is starting to question, could, could this guy be Sauron or is, is he just thinking it just is as plain as the words say, just who are you? I think he can be intrigued by who he is because maybe he could be trying to plan to say, maybe like manipulate him or help try to use him to get himself out. But I, I don't believe he thinks it's Sauron at the moment. I actually do. I think he is potentially coming to that revelation that he is Sauron, that he's starting to put the dots together. Yeah. I'm with Jake. I a hundred percent think that he thinks that this guy could be Sauron. Yeah. yeah I don't think he thought that until, recently but i think he he started to connect the dots and realized that the truth he thought might not be the truth because i do think he knows enough to know that sauron is a shapeshifter and i think he's starting to connect the dots i think he 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 smells it here i think it'd be really cool obviously i mean i would love for him to be that on the ball and catch it that quickly it would be a cool because he has obviously proven to be a very smart character yeah, th- that's the same way I was reading it. It's just they do so much with just little little looks on Adar's face where you can kind of read into them. And, and that's the, definitely the way I read into this one. Listen, I mean, Adar, there's Adar this, has clues too. listen, there's this whole thing where he's like, who did I kill a woman, a child, maybe? And it's like if anybody if he if that did happen, if anybody is going to want to slit this guy's throat. It's definitely the guy who had like his wife or his child killed. And at the end of this whole thing where Galadriel's getting ready to slit his throat, Halbrand's the one that says stop. I it doesn't make sense to me. Am I making sense here? Like Yeah, I, I yeah. thought the same thing. Like it's yeah, a yeah, weird role reversal. Yeah, like, I he mean definitely came around all of a sudden. I, I, I'm thinking like this is the same guy. 
Like, we're supposed to believe that this guy is, like, the guy who's going to unite the Southlands and be their king. And this is the same guy that, like, and I guess you could make the the point of, like, oh, he's gone through a change since he's met Galadriel and he's come around and blah, blah, blah. But he's, sa- he's the same guy who separated himself from the raft from all the other people in episode three. And, or is it two? And... And was basically leaving them out there to die in the sea uh, from the worm. I don't think this guy has any connection other than the, uh, with the people of the Southlands as far as, like, being an heir to the throne. So I think he has connections with them for deceiving them. So I agree. I agree. And I, I think it's a major clue for Adar that this guy clearly knows who he is. And just based on his visage alone, Adar doesn't know who he is. I mean, that's if you know that Sauron's a shapeshifter and you put those two facts together, I don't think it takes necessarily a super genius to start to question who this could be. Yeah, but yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, so Galadriel is sitting a distance away looking at her bloody dagger and Halbrand approaches her and she thanks him for pulling her back and – he basically says, you know, thank you, you pulled me back first. And Gladwell then says to him, whatever it was they did to you and whatever it was that you did, be free of it. And he replies, I never believed I could be until today. Fighting at your side, I felt if I could just hold on to that feeling, keep it with me always, bind it to my very being, then I, and Gladwell interrupts him here and says, I felt it too. And they're then interrupted by a soldier that's summoning Halbrand to the Queen Regent Muriel. Um, what did I, you guys I, make I, I of, want, the, of this, what Halbrand was saying here? I want to – yeah, I definitely want to pause on this and talk about this because, you know, she says, you know – repeat, what did she say about him being free from it? She says, whatever it was they did to you and whatever it was that you did, be free of it. Yeah, and – I I just feel like that he would not be able to feel like he would be able to just be free of if he lost someone like if he's this man who lost a child or a, or, or a woman or friends family just to just to kind of like wash your hands of that and be like okay I'm fine with it now <laughs> you know because Galadriel sure isn't she lost her brother and she's still going for for vengeance against Sauron because of this. I don't think I think it I think we're looking at repentant Sauron here. I think we're looking at a repentant Sauron who thinks that he can he can tr- I can do this. I can turn this around. I don't have to be called by like my destiny. I can change this. I feel like I can change this. I can change. I can be different. I can be a new person. That's what I think we're looking at. I think we're looking at a repentant a repentant Sauron who's trying to do right for the valor, because I think that he feels like that's his only choice at this point. I don't know. I just, I, I'm not buying. I, t- I took him at his word as well. Yeah, like, I think it's just going to make it all the more heartbreaking when he obviously can't. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. That I'm, I'm right on track with you guys. I, I feel like by him saying that he never believed he could be until today, fighting at her side, that he was for the first time. In his very long life, he was fighting on the side of the light, and he has not done that 
since his days as a Maiar in, in Valinor before he was corrupted by Morgoth. And now fighting by Galadriel's side, he felt what it was like to fight on the side of the light, and it felt good. And he's saying that he wants to hold on to that feeling. And and I think with the way that this episode ends, I, I think that it's going to be pushing this character in a direction to where maybe he's not going to be able to hold on to that light because it's it's pretty much going to be smothered in darkness coming up. Well, do you th- think it's possible that um, Halbrand, let's say he is Sauron, that he reveals that to Galadriel to kind of get that off his chest because he feels like he has changed and will change and that it's Galadriel's reaction to knowing that and her emotions and her feelings still that make that change impossible that he's still not accepted even though he's completely repented repented at that point yeah i like that that's interesting that would be i think it would be impossible obviously for her to see past the past and like you said jacob that would be a driving factor to his acceleration to giving up on the repentant idea it's a really engaging idea overall i mean brian i I love that theory of it and the idea now that he could be trying to do right and it man i now it's like i i need to know and i don't think we're going to find out soon enough and i need to know like yesterday i think galadriel if that's what happens jake galadriel is going to be like brad pitt opening the box at end of seven and seeing his, you know, seeing Gwyneth Paltrow's head and she's going to have to make like this big decision of like, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I just can really see it. There seems to be an overarching theme the entire season that like, even in this episode with the Adar Galadriel conversation, that they're not as noble and holy as they put it out there to be. That Galadriel is capable of being just as much of a villain and having a disregard to the greater good of um, everyone as anyone. I think if we find out that Halbrand is Sauron, and there's, I mean, I think there's a case for it. I think there's a case against it. But if we find out that he is, I think going back and watching the entire season again, the rewatchability is just going to be incredible and through the roof, especially in this episode as well. Like mm-hmm. the fact that Halbrand saves Elendil from dying in this one. It's that's wild, right? <laughs> Absolutely wild. wild. Oh my God. I mean, think about that. Like it, it adds so much more and think about the, the layer that it adds to watching the movies then to see what happens. It really, I think there are, if Halbrand is Sauron, they have really done a great job, in my opinion, in enhancing the viewing enjoyment of not only this season from the earlier episodes and watching Galadriel show up on the raft with him, down to like the battle that we see with Isildur, you know, cutting the cutting the ring off the hand i mean it and his and his father dying i mean the same guy that saves him is the is the same guy that ends up killing him it's i mean it's brilliant it really enhances that it does it really does jackson himself has said that the one thing he really had trouble with writing the screenplay for those og movies is personifying sauron like there's there's no body there's no actor it's really hard to convey this character as the main villain to your general layman audience and i 
And yeah, I think this show just enhances that so much and honestly does a better job than the OG movies and making this guy a very fleshed out main villain. And more so, too, even with the Hobbit trilogy. I mean, a lot of the stuff that people complain about are the ancillary appendices stuff added, the stuff with Gandalf and Saruman and Galadriel appearing. But if this plays out to be true, adds a lot of context to those conflicts that occur. And again, I think enhances things that people would have complaints about prior. Oh, my God. It makes the Hobbit movies better. That's a feat. (laughs) There we go. Uh, So then we get a scene of Muriel speaking with Bronwyn, and she introduces Lord Halbrin. And Bronwyn notices the sigil on his pouch and asks if he is the king they were promised, and he answers yes. And so everybody's pretty happy. They Can we just stop here for a moment and say that Halbrin is not Theo's father? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Right here it shows it. This is Halbrand. Uh, or uh, Bronwyn has never seen Halbrin before. I mean, and I'm not saying that I never thought that there was a chance that he could be, because, I mean, it was definitely a possibility, but this solidifies it for us. So I think that, you know, we need to start eliminating some of these theories, and this was definitely one of them that was been floating around on on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter. So, yeah. This yeah, reminded me absolutely. a little bit of Zool asking Dan Aykroyd if, you know, he was a god or not, too. Like, what's Halliburton going to say in this moment? Like, he has to say yes. <laughs> I think it's- that at this point, he's if he is Sauron, he's saying, you know what, I'm going to play this role. This it Yes, this is who I am now. I am. Yes, I can do this. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to play I, along, I was thinking that, and then I was also thinking, is there a part of him that's worried? That is, is this like, you know, putting a shot of whiskey in front of like a, a, a an alcoholic that just got his 60-day chip? Totally. That's a great analogy. I think um, that'll, that'll come around. I think that analogy will sound even smarter come, you know, a couple more episodes, even a season or two later. I think we're gonna. Yeah. I think we're gonna find out that this guy is Sauron. I would say in the finale. I I, I firmly. Believe I hope that so too. too. I think you have to close strong like that. That's where I'm at on it as well, especially with the way that this episode ends. Um, Do you think um, Bronwyn is is a little smitten here? Possibly. Yeah, I was wondering that on my second and third rewatch. I if, never if got be- that. What 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 did you pick up on to to think that? Because I never, I, I don't know. She just maybe it's just in awe of the sigil and knowing like the prophecy and what he promises to them. But I don't know. She seems very just the way he the way she looks at him. Okay, I I'm just yeah. I might have to rewatch it again. I'm not saying that it's not there. I just didn't see it. So, yeah, I don't think it's obvious. And I and it's why I posed it as a question. Like I could be just reading too much into it, but uh, I don't know. I definitely got some. Maybe we're going to get a little bit of a love love triangle vibes from this scene. I mean, especially oh, yeah. if he is trying to manipulate them, if it's more of a sinister means, if it's less repentant and even more sinister. And this is just kind of a master plan to kind of ingratiate yourself with the kind of pseudo leader, assumed leader of the group prior to you arriving 
I mean, it's definitely smart strategically. Was there anyone else, though, interestingly enough, like I, obviously they came through in the battle and saved them, so they've gained some credit that way. But in my head, I was thinking, is anybody going to be uh, like an Amani Python moment and be like, well, I didn't vote for you. Who said you were the king? Like, I, I, everyone was just instantly in. All good. Cool. Hey, don't king. blame me. I voted for Kodos. <laughs> Strange women distributing pouches is no basis for a system of government. <laughs> um, so uh, Galadriel then gives Arondir the bundle, and uh, he spies Theo sitting alone, looking kind of morose. And so he goes and talks to him, and we find out that, that Theo's really missing the blade. And and he tells Arondir that it, it's not guilt, just guilt that he feels over it, but loss. He says, when it was in my hands, I felt powerful. And Arondir tells him to give it to Numenor to toss into the sea on their way home. And he hands him the bundle. And Theo opens it up, and it's not the key inside. It's it's just it's just a hatchet. They they pulled a switcheroo. And you know that that harkens back to when Adar came out of the tavern and said, Waldrig, I have a task for you. Uh, because um, we cut to the watchtower and Waldrig is readying to use this keys. The, the sword has already been created. We see blood running down his arm. Um, he inserts the, the, the sword into like a keyhole that's at the base of that carving that we saw on the wall in the watchtower in the last episode. And he thrusts it into the ground and then turns it and the ground rumbles. And we see the dam next to the watchtower begin crumbling in these spillways opening up in this giant reservoir that's beyond the watchtower starts emptying into the valley below. Well, we see the water start to go into the tunnels that they dug. Like they, they strategically dug these tunnels to lead this water in, to where it finally makes its way into that lava. Yeah. yeah. Maximize the destruction. Definitely. They were, they were digging canals. Yes. You know, we they, thought they were building tunnels to hide themselves. They were building canals. Yep. Absolutely. They, they needed to channel all of this water into an underground magma chamber or magma chamber. Um, and so then we get a, a, a brief scene with a seal door and a lendil talking and uh they're talking about horses and and uh Elendil's telling the sealdor that when a when a, a horse of the the westeries has been in battle with its rider it forms a deep connection and he basically tells a sealdor that that his horse Barak is troubled because he senses that you're troubled and a sealdor wants to know how his father learned this and and his father tells him that he learned it from his mother and so I thought this was like a really nice scene between father and son. Um, and then the, the ground begins to shake and water blasts from the orc tunnels all around town, just starts blasting through all the barriers they put in place, just shooting up like geysers. And the orcs begin to chant Udun, Udun over and over again, which is super on them, uh, um, uh, ominous. I mean, one, it's a really amazingly executed plan. But two, even the, in the scene, I agree. I really like the Isildur-Elendil scene, but it is kind of funny in hindsight where Isildur could go down back 
to his father and be like, are you sure the, the horse just wasn't upset because there was a giant tidal wave coming? <laughs> <laughs> well, because that's the way I was reading it at first. It's like, yeah, that horse feels the ground vibrating. He's saying, we need to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> I think it's cool, though, that the fucking orcs are basically chanting, welcome to hell on earth. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's fucking, that's metal as shit. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. <laughs> uh, and then we see water flowing along all the orcs' trenches, and we see it eventually spilling into this giant underground magma chamber that is at the base of Orodrun, which will later be called Mount Doom. And all of this water dropping in on the lava causes it to violently erupt. And kudos to the way they filmed this because i've watched lots of documentaries on volcanic eruptions and stuff and they did this pretty scientifically we see a huge shock wave that goes out first and it sweeps over the village and then you see lava bombs begin raining all around them and it's just taking out men horses and buildings um I, the kind of a funny scene here that elendil shouts the queen and he runs off in her direction, basically just running right into the path of all these lava bombs. Like, it's pretty heroic and badass. Whereas Isildur looks around and shouts for his horse. <laughs> I don't know if that cracked anybody else up. <laughs> the whole thing was just outrageous. Once you just it, once it just started and it was that that cascading effect, nothing was really surprising me because, again, that was – yeah, we did a lot of predictions on what we thought the tunnels could be and the 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 whole purpose for them, strategic attacking from underneath, et cetera. But if you gave me a hundred guesses, I would have never have guessed this, which again I think was amazing. And I'm sure there's gonna be people that are haters, but just the the power of nature and then using what would be considered usually a, a positive power, water and life to combine with like you said, the magma chamber and with Mount Doom. I mean, again, it was just it was ingenious. You don't want to sit here and give praise to such a sinister plan. But again, that they used nature against our heroes is very sinister. Not only that, they made the men of the Southlands and the elves dig their fucking plan for them. I mean, yeah, oh think about God, that. Right. It's 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 one of those things where like, uh, you know, Yes, you know that there's a contingency plan. Galadriel pr presents it to M Queen Muriel, but they still have no idea what that all entails. And we see that fully play out here in this episode. And it's it's pretty brilliant. <laughs> like Morgoth was a smart dude. This guy wasn't playing checkers. He was playing chess. And yeah, he won. Yeah, fucking three-dimensional chess. I mean... And geez, I, like I had just mentally like taken a break after all the intensity of this episode, too. And so I was really taken aback when everything ramped up to 11 one more time in our last act here. Did you guys think of Pompeii when the volcano was going yes. on? Yes. Yeah, I yes. did. I did, too. Yeah, with, without a doubt. And um, so we see Galadriel and she's just staring at this eruption in the distance as if in disbelief that like. <laughs> like how did this happen and it, it and chaos is just erupting around her with people fleeing for their lives and you know we see muriel helping people get to safety we see halbrand helping people get to safety and the entire time galadriel's just standing there staring and you you see this giant cloud of ash and fire this pyroclastic flow coming from the volcano 
and it is sweeping through the village, burning everything in its pass in its path. Um, it shows where Adar had been being held prisoner, and it's just an empty pair of shackles now laying on the floor. So he has somehow slipped his bonds and escaped, and Galadriel still just stands there unmoving, just watching as this cloud of fiery death swiftly approaches her. And she closes her eyes, and the cloud seemingly engulfs her, and then we get credits. It like and, it like the cloud creates the screen wipe to the credits, you know? Yeah, that was, that was brilliant. The only thing I felt like that was missing in all this that would have been even more badass is when Waldrig activates the key. I was hoping that it would have something there would have killed him. Right? Same. That would have been cool. Even if the key oh, yeah. itself would have taken his life, that would have been pretty fucking crazy too. Yeah, anything, anything. The yeah. key kills yeah. him. Some like some, you know, something kills him. I think that that would have. But does it does it make you guys believe that they still have more plans for Waldrig going forward? I don't. Know. I do believe that. I think we're going to see more at our Waldrig conversation before the season's over. He's a it's pretty like compelling a- character in in the fact that he's a human turncoat. And he's really the only human that's on the the bad guy's side that we have that we can relate to at all. So it would make sense to me as well that that they would bring him back and he wouldn't be done yet. Well, if the he's mom, not really doing it out of fear, he's almost doing it out of loyalty, which if, makes yeah. him very different than the other characters. If Bronwyn does die, and I think we're all kind of leading towards that happening at one point or another, yes. Um, I mean, and he still has this obsession with the sword. Who's he going to be able to? He can't really, he can't really talk to Erendir about it. He's probably going to want to talk to Waldrick. I don't know. I just can see those two kind of like hooking up again and talking. You know, yeah. or he he establishes a good relationship with Halbrand, and if he is Sauron, that kind of leads into the. The hey, he could be the Witch King. He lost his mother and has nobody. And maybe Arendir goes off with the elves, or you know, there could be plenty of kind of different scenarios that could put Theo yeah. in a very um, impressionable situation. I just see, I just see Arendir as the the kind of elf that would, you know, if he's making a promise to Bronwyn to to start a life with her and with Theo. If she died, I'd see him wanting to still be a part of his life, right? Wouldn't you? Yes. I, I think he very poignantly brought up Theo's name earlier in the scene when they had their first kiss, when he talked about, you know, what they would do once this was all said and done. Like, he, he included Theo mm-hmm. very on purpose. Yeah, and I mean, him and Theo have already basically had, like, their game of catch, right? With him yeah, they've thrown it out for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, with him teaching him, you know, the how to use the bow and arrow and everything. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, Theo's never had that because his dad left. So do we think do you think we'll ever find we'll ever find out what happened now that we know Halbrand is out? Halbrand is definitely not Theo's father. Do you think that we will get the Theo's father reveal or do you think that that's going to be something where they're just like, it's not important. Don't worry about it. And you'll never get it. I think we will get it. I think without it, it feels too Anakin Skywalker. And um, I think we will get that reveal. Hmm. Yeah, I we, could, sorry, go ahead, Jeff. 
Okay, yeah, I could see it going the other way also is that they just they they needed they needed Theo to have a single mother so it could be a love interest for a Rondier, and so maybe it won't have anything to do with the story, but you bringing up the the Anakin Skywalker analog, I hadn't considered that. He could find out who his father is as far as even just like the identity and maybe later on have a, a chance meeting. I could see there being maybe kind of a revenge scenario maybe he you know when he finds his father he kills him or you know does something because you know his mother died and there's grief and you know the abandonment all that i could see that happening as well yeah so what what are the chances that that all of our characters are going to survive this you know the this this pyroclastic flow that is racing towards the village because in in real life these things I mean, there's no outrunning it. They go up to like 450 miles an hour. They they are insanely hot. They have poisonous gases. It's basically made of ash, rocks, and poisonous gas. Um, so, I mean, do you yeah. think we're going to see some of our characters dying in this? Do you think that, you know, because this is a TV show and all that, people are going to be sheltered and they're going to live through it? I mean, I, I have a hard time just ma- believing. I think all of our mains are going to survive this. Yeah, and th- and that feels safe, but it's just they just seem to be in such a dire position at the end of this, especially Galadriel, to where a part of me was almost saying, "Is this some sort of dream su- sequence? How is she going to survive this?" She's the one I can promise you will survive. We know Galadriel's <laughs> going to survive. <laughs> we we know. I'm pretty sure she makes it. Yeah, Isildur and Elendil survive as well, and yeah, they got good odds for them too. <laughs> yeah, and, but it got a feeling about this guy. But if. If Bronwyn wasn't taken out by the arrow, I don't see them having her taken out this way. I think that if Agreed. if Bronwyn dies, I think that it's going to be a moment where we kind of saw it happen in this episode where Aaron Deer didn't step up and show where the key was to Adar and Theo had to do it. There might be something that happens later, either in this season or the next season, where he's given that choice again, and Theo has nothing to do with it, and Aaron Deer still does not save her, right? Or he can't save her in time and she dies, and maybe maybe he resents Aaron Deer for that. So um, I like that a lot. I definitely yeah, think totally. if... if- you're going by the theory that Theo is going to become some kind of a bad guy, possibly the witch King. It's going to take something like that to kind of turn his attitude. So I I like that theory. And I don't think it's crazy to think that he could turn evil. I mean, there are definitely, they're planting (laughs) this episode. They were literally planting seeds, but the, the show has been planting seeds that this kid has been drawn somehow to, a dark entity, some some sort of dark magic. It's pulled the blood out of his body for crying out loud. And so I think that there's definitely he is being pulled by something. And I think they're setting it up for him to have a downfall and become a dark character. And I just don't see him being that totally. character with a loving mother in his life. I think you have to get rid of her at some at some point in the story. And then maybe have it in a way to where another character he blames them for her death and yeah i think that it would be an interesting 
an interesting thing to see happen with Aaron Deer, some guy he's getting very close with. And then sometimes the people that you're closest with are the ones that kind of hurt you the most or, you know, so yeah, we'll see. I, I, I just, I really like all the, the speculation and all the stuff that they're, I mean, you get, your mind can run wild with theories with this show because I think that they've, we've gotten to know these characters uh, quite well, um, even though they have all their secrets and shit. I think we've gotten to know them all quite well, and we can kind of try to jump to our own conclusions on what might happen in this story. And I kind of love it for that. Absolutely. It, it makes it so much fun. And with, with all the lore that there is to dive into, and the fact that, you know, this is a prequel of sorts, we know what's going to happen in a few thousand years or. You know, in even less than that, we know what's going to happen with some of our principal characters that we have on the screen right now. And it, it does add that extra level of, of mystery into it. To how are we going to get from point A to point B and what's that journey going to be like? Are you guys shocked that this is happening in episode six? We've still got two more episodes left. Like, you'd think this is a big enough event. Like, this could be the way that the season ended. Right? Yep. Absolutely. For sure. And that's when I thought this battle was going to take place, was in the very last episode. So I was shocked to get it here. We've got two I, more episodes I wasn't left. That shocked. I, I Jake, it's the creation of Mordor. It, like, this, I'm saying, I'm, what I'm saying is th- this could be a season finale for. You, do you do you understand what I'm saying? Like no, I understand what you're saying. Like this is a big enough cataclysmic event that this could have this could have been the closer. I just like in Lord of the Rings fashion. I don't I expect it to end on a little bit more of a quieter moment, mm-hmm. than potentially a, a cliffhanger or an action sequence. Like in my head, I always expected the big action episode to be either six or seven from the beginning. Yeah, I, I actually get your point, the structure wise. I think you're both right. Like both arguments make sense. The Lord of the Rings structure argument, Jake, I get. I feel like though this definitely lends credence to kind of Brian's like overarching theory that this season's literally either ending with a big character identity reveal, either the stranger or Halbrand, Sauron, whatever, or we get the very first mention of the rings. Like those to me now are like basically the only two significant enough moments that can tie off this season. Yeah. And in the way that this episode went also in, in only showing these characters, it, it makes me wonder if we're not going to get, any more of the Southland at all in, in episode seven. And if episode seven is purely going to focus on, on Elrond and Durin and what's going on with the Harfoots. And maybe then in episode eight, they're going to kind of tie everything back together somehow. I keep thinking I to myself, like the elves at this point, and maybe I'm just talking about something completely different. The elves are thinking that they need to, use the mithril to make these to cover to saturate their bodies right so that they can harness the light of the valar once again and be able to you know overcome this and they're gonna find that's not gonna work guys right (laughs) i mean that's not gonna work so someone has to have that someone who is sauron has to have the conversation with calabrimbor about the rings it has to eventually happen because I don't think that, I mean, we've kind of speculated that, oh, maybe 
that was a conversation that happened off screen. Maybe it was a vision in a Palantir. I don't think the conversation's happened yet. I think they're changing it. And they, the, the whole reason he's making this forge is to make whatever they're, to, to make whatever kind of like, um, mithril vests or whatever they're wanting to saturate the elves in. And I don't even think that they're even thinking about rings at this point. I agree. I think this is plan A. This is like the prototype. This is going to fail. Celebrimbor, the elves are going to think they're screwed. That's when Sauron slips in with the idea of hope there. And maybe you use weapons and particularly the ring. So I agree, Brian. There has to be some kind of failure first to set themselves up to be vulnerable to suggestion. Yes. Yeah, I like that. That's a great point. And I do agree that bringing up the rings is very potentially where this could all end. I mean, I feels weird to have an entire season of a show called the rings of power where we're not even mentioning those. What are the chances that when this happens, the audience knows that Hal Brand is Sauron, but our characters don't know. We go into next season. We go into next season knowing that Sauron is Hal Brand. And then our main characters are just, they have no idea. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping happens. I I think that's the most intriguing for the audience and gives the writers the most interesting things to do if that's the case. Oh, for sure, because we could get maybe a reveal at the end of this season to where we find out that Halbrand's Sauron. None of the other characters know it. The Southlands is fucked now. They definitely going to need some reinforcements to fight against this. So maybe they all travel to Erebor. And that's where Sor- or that's where Halbrand's able to insinuate himself, you know, with Celebrimbor. Yeah, I still think it's going to be Adar that that reveals, this, and that's how that's going to work. Is Adar is going to be an expendable character that's going to reveal to both Halibrand and the audience that he's Sauron, and then that character's dead, and then we're right where Brian wants to be, where we know who he is, but the other characters don't. That could totally happen in the last episode, too. We know that Adar's slipped his bonds and he's out there running loose somewhere. How Sauron of a scene would it be if if Halbrand finds him out there, like in somewhere where it's raining ash and fire? And and that's where he reveals himself. And there's this conversation where Adar is like, you know, you can't fight your destiny or something along those lines. And he's like, you know. Yeah, Adar's laughing at him. Once Adar realizes that he's repentant, Sauron, that's got to just slay Adar. I could totally see there being a scene in the very beginning next week, like a a visual shot of like Halbrand coming out of the fire and the figure. And that could be a total kind of illusion as well. Like that was what I was thinking may happen at the very end. Like maybe he was going to come emerging out of the fire and, and save Galadriel again. But it also gives you that background of the fire and the black figure and that's kind of i'm looking to see if that if we get any kind of visual cues early on next week yeah this this episode the previous episode they've done nothing to sway my 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 theory that halbrand is sauron it's it's, the last two episodes have made it the strongest it's ever been in my opinion I agree. It started yeah. with it started with his obsession of being a smithy, right? It kind of started there. Mm-hmm. I mean that, and 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 now it's just been 
everything that's come out of his mouth, you could take it one way or the other, right? It's not like, I don't feel like it's concrete. Mm -mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we still haven't gotten like this. We still haven't gotten like this big speech from him of like, you know, yes, I am the heir. I am, I am son of whoever and blah, blah, none of that. It's just, it's just, it's just so ambiguous. He's, he is fucking, he is the, he is the loot crate of characters. He's the mystery box (laughs) of all these characters. Like at this point, did you guys miss? The Harfoot story. Did you miss the dwarves? Did you? I, for as much as I love that, I was so happy to have an episode where they're just like, okay, we're doing two things. Numenor meets Middle Earth. Like, let's do this. Like, let's. I agree. I agree. I I love those characters and I can't wait to see them again. But this is the kind of structure I want for these big battle episodes. No, if like I if, want the focus on the battle and the through line to not be interrupted by it. Yeah, you throw Poppy into this episode singing a song. <laughs> I'm no. like, like for as much as I loved that in the last episode, like you can't do that here. Like the focus on this episode, I loved it, and I and I kind of felt, and I'm sure you guys felt the same way that like. Once we started out knowing that this battle was going to happen, like, this is where we're at. Like, we're not going anywhere. I was never worried that we were going to go to the Harfoot story. I was never worried we were going to go to, like, Durin and and uh, Elrond and Calabrimbor or whatever's going on over there. I knew, like, this is where we're at. I, I agree. I agree. I felt the same way. Mm-hmm. I just think the twists and turns of this episode, I mean, how many surprises we had from the tower trap to the the fake orcs to the switcheroo to the geo you know the explosion and the eruption i mean there were four or five twists and turns that i didn't see any of them coming throughout the whole episode listen i i love these theories like i'm on reddit and it's like i love these theories there's a user wise entrepreneur 526 and he came up with i thought was like a really good theory this episode of course debunks it but, like, I love the way people are thinking. He says, the sword is clearly... He's talking about the key. The sword is clearly Sauron. He hid from the Valar as the sword. He was passed father to son and feeds off the blood to survive. Once Adar had him, he will perform some necrotic ritual to bring him back from the from sword land. And it's like... I lo- <laughs> Very Voldemort-ish. But, <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, But I love that people are coming up with all sorts of theories for this. And, you know, maybe, maybe we're in the same boat. Maybe we're like, maybe we are way off with this Halbrand to Sauron thing, but it just seems too easy for Halbrand to be king of the Southlands, right? Yeah. Very convenient. It is very convenient. This episode got me really excited for the future meeting between Elrond and Isildur. And just thinking about how iconic it's going to be when those two characters have their first like greeting together. I think we'll get that by the end of the season. I don't think so. I don't think that that those two through lines will unite. That probably I think will be a season two because I think there's still more story to tell within that Casa Doom and the Mithril kind of saga right now. Yeah, I could see it not being quite yet this season, but I think that's too iconic of a moment to pass up. Like, there's too much juice there. That's definitely going to happen. 
to be fair, I didn't think Mordor would get created this episode either. <laughs> no, no, no. And honestly, the only note that I never brought up while we were talking about this episode, just to bring up really quickly, is, man, Queen Muriel's headgear is the coolest piece of armor I've ever seen in Lord of the Rings anything. Loved it. Yeah, yeah, she looked really good. Her armor was cool, too. Yeah, that, that sun headgear, that thing that she had going on, that was so cool. Uh-huh. Um, did anybody ask her how many orcs she killed? Did she kill any orcs? Mm, I never saw her do any battle. It looked like she was more leading. Yeah, that, that, I think the armor is just for peacocking then, right? Yeah, I agree. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's what royalty's for. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it's like... Uh, um, what was it? Uh, Joaquin Phoenix showing up to the battle late in Gladiator. <laughs> yes. Oh, I've I've missed it. I've missed the battle. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> this episode kicked ass. Oh yeah, oh, this was, was a great episode. Best it episode. It was so yet. good. Absolutely, definitely the best episode yet. Action packed, full of twists and turns. Oh, man, the fighting in it was great. This was a very exciting piece of television. I think it was probably like a lot of the budget went into this battle, right? I mean, for For sure. I can't imagine we're going to see a bigger battle in the next two episodes than what we got here. Definitely not. Yeah, no, especially looking what the next two, you know, what the other two storylines are. This was this was always the one that was going to have a battle. I am very interested in seeing if if those, um, you know, those what what we're assuming those cultists of Sauron, if they are eventually going to catch up with the Harfoots and the stranger and and what's going to happen there, because we could see some pretty amazing shit there. Not like a full scale battle, but we could see some pretty cool magic stuff. Did you see the writers this week confirm that we will find out the identity of those characters by the end of this first season? Oh, really? Cool. Very nice. Well, they're, like they're, oh, we didn't even mention this, but their names were given right yes. in, in the credits for last week's episode. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Slim Shady was the dweller. Uh, the the one holding the the shield looking thing that had the constellation on the back is the ascetic and the one that was wearing armor and a helmet is, uh, the nomad. Yeah. And I did a lot of digging online, looking through Tolkien runes and different library, different, uh, alphabets and stuff that he came up with. And I couldn't find anything that looked like the nomads, like the, the, the kind of like the collar piece of her armor. It's got a bunch of runes, going across it and then it also has what looks like an eye in the middle of it which is pretty interesting i'm very intrigued to be able to get that i mean we're obviously going to get a, a lot of harfoot and we're going to get a lot of Doran and elrond so i've always been of the opinion that we were going to end with the harfoots this season i had a feeling with that but again that also could lead to the identity of them or maybe they get the stranger and the Harfoots have to go try to like rescue him. A la Sam did in return of the King, something like that. Mm, yeah. It's going to be an interesting position because the last time we saw the stranger in Nori, Nori was running away from the stranger in fear. Yeah. 
there's a lot there, there, that could go so many directions. I really don't have a solid prediction, but I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, well, that covers everything I got in my notes here. Did you guys have anything else? No, I'm good. I think that was great. Yeah. Um, wow. Two episodes left. Crazy. <laughs> it's going by so fast. Yeah. Next episode's going to be very interesting knowing it's the penultimate episode. Yeah, exactly. Joe, do you know how to end a show? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, uh, how how do we usually do this one? (laughs) I'll I'll do it. Everybody, hey, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. We're going to cover episode seven, the untitled episode seven. Uh, But until then, uh, you can find me and Jake on our podcast, Pop Culture Leftovers. We're not recording a new episode this week, but I will be dropping something for people to listen to. Joe, when you're not. You can find me on my podcast, Startcast. Uh, just one-on-one conversations usually with folks. Got new episodes dropping every Saturday. There you go. I was going to ask you, when you're not struggling to end a show, where can people find you? But <laughs> <laughs> If you've listened to StartCast, you can tell that I'm very good at landing shows on that one. <laughs> and Billy, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on the Reality Guys YouTube page where I cover the fantasy world of reality television. Uh, anything from The Bachelor franchise, Survivor, Amazing Race, Big Brother, any of the Netflix shows, um, the Reality Guys on YouTube. All right. Yep. We will see you next week with Episode 7. See ya. Later, y'all. Bye. Later.